Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reals. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. All right, everyone, welcome to another Mama Bear Apologetics podcast. We are so excited that you joined us here today. If you were listening to this, it's because you survived a very sweltering summer. I mean, hoorah to you. You've got kiddos that are going off to school. And this podcast could not come at a better time because so many of you, especially if you are living in the Pacific Northwest, uh, on the West Coast, Northeast Coast, these are something, these are some things that you're going to be encountering in your kid's classroom that may have caught you off guard. In fact, what we're discussing today was actually sent to me by a mom who it saw it in her own classroom and was wanting to know how do we engage in these principles. So what we're going to be talking about today are the Black Lives Matters principles. There's 13 of them that are actually being posted in a lot of elementary school classrooms. And with me today is just a, an amazing ministry. I love Monique Dusan. She is fantastic. Monique, please share a little bit about your ministry and why this is just uh, such a relevant topic today to be wrestling with. Well, hello. I am Monique Dusan, and I am the co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. I actually co-founded um, CFBU, as I call it, back in 2020 with my partner, um, Krista Bontrager. And we really just set out to create an organization that was Christ-centered, Bible-centered, and that could have um, conversations on race, justice, and unity, but from a God-centered perspective first. So before we look at any social theory, before we look at you know what BLM is saying or what a feminist movement might be saying or LGBTQ+, we are going to dig into the Word of God and say, see what does the Word of God say about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's just who we are. We travel around talking and training people to be able to have these conversations. And we also, you know, host a number of podcasts to be able to equip just regular people. We are regular people and we want to equip other people to be able to have these conversations and understand, you know, if this, how do you know when, when the social theories pop up in your child's school? Mm. Oh, and I've been able to see uh, Monique and Krista in person multiple times. And not only are their sessions always packed out, but they are so insightful and grace filled. And that's what's such a huge blessing with dealing with topics that like this, who that are so dicey and so emotionally charged that they can just come at it, not only biblically, but graciously as well. And of course, I love your guys' sense of humor. I mean, that, that appeals to me personally, because gosh, if you can get people laughing, usually the, the frustrations can go down a bit. So I, I totally appreciate your guys's approach so mom we just are being us obviously we're just being us you have to you have to and that's the thing like this is not a place for like staunch shirts you know we're gonna we're gonna tackle it but we're gonna be real about it and of course at mom bear we're we're big into being real yes All right. So moms and dads, if you were listening uh, in our comment section or actually down below, we should have a link. And this is actually going to be a a printout, uh, a picture of what we're going to be engaging with. So this is something that you can look at and follow along with. I highly recommend it. Of course, if you are in the car right now and you're listening on audio, please do not look at anything. Just focus on the road. But what this is, is this is a handout that's being posted in a lot of classrooms now that basically outlines 13 principles of BL that they're wanting to teach kids and help kids start practicing. So Monique, just right off the bat, why do you think there's a big push to to bring BLM into the elementary school classrooms? Like you'd you'd expect this sort of thing to be discussed maybe in in, uh, social studies or upper level civics, you know, maybe in high school or upper level middle school, but this is coming in little kids' classrooms. So why is there this focus on the kids so far? 
Well, I think there's a larger dynamic at play that is beyond the scope of just, you know, race itself. Um, I think that what's happening is that one, well, even before I say what I think is happening, one, what we must understand is that critical race theory is part of a larger set of social theories, Mm -hmm. a set of social theories that continues to grow. So, you know, we started talking about, you know, publicly critical race theory in 2020. 20 when we had George Floyd and, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, this term came on the scene, critical race theory. And everyone was like, well, what is critical race theory? And, you know, how does it impact me? Am I a racist? And so we had all these conversations. What people weren't realizing was that critical race theory, while it may be about race, it is tied to a much larger system of social theories. And so when we say, you know, I'm seeing critical race theory in my child's school. What you also should be looking for are the other social theories. We tend to say that it's like a train. And so we you have critical race theory maybe in the front of the train. You should also understand that your school, your church, your knitting group, whatever your community is, you have all of these other social theories too. Now, back to my thought or belief is that in by introducing critical race theory and having acceptance of critical race theory, it makes it so much easier for LGBTQ plus mm ideologies to make its way in for people to um, more easily accept things like queer theory for child studies to be brought in for us to have conversations on when can a child make their own decisions where do we um, bring in the word consent how can a child offer consent and so focusing on blm is one small slide of the bigger pie. We even see this with the um, with the Black Lives Matter flag. So, you know, when we think about Black Lives Matter, we're thinking, you know, Black, white on Black racism. We're thinking about systems because that was the conversation for a while that Black Lives Matter was promoting. But when you look at their website, um, the one before they scrubbed it, right. and when you look at their flag, what are the first things you see? It's the Black trans life. Mm. The Black trans life is what matters. And so I believe critical race theory is really just... Um, kind of like the mouse put pushing you know his nose through the door or through the crack mm-hmm. to be able to get the larger body in the larger body being the other social theories that are attached on the train so yes if i can have conversations of um inclusivity within the first grade classroom or if i can have conversations and curricula around activism within the first to third grade classrooms, well, and and if that's built upon race, how will I leave out, you know, conversations on inclusivity around the transsexual? I can't because of the word inclusivity all by itself. I must be an inclusive environment or an inclusive atmosphere. Yeah. And so this is what people don't see that that Black Lives Matter, the critical race conversation and all of that, that is one slice. It is a very narrow slice of a pie that is much larger. And um, this is why we're seeing it in schools, because schools are looking to promote or I would actually say indoctrinate if we're just going to be clear about it. We're going to be indoctrinate. Yeah, they're looking to indoctrinate young people so that by the time the young person graduates, they are then able to go out and transform society. One of the definitions of critical race theory is that critical, and this is from um, Jean Stefanchich and Richard Delgado's book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. They define critical race theory and they are part of the like originators of the movement. Critical race theory is a movement. Critical race theory, um, it, the movement of critical race theory is meant to transform our relationship, society's relationship between race, racism, and power. Mm. The word power there is extremely important because every social theory is looking to transform relationships based on power dynamics. We aren't understanding exactly how um, critical race theory is really just a small slice. And we're seeing that small slice because people are really looking to um, just get things in the door. Yeah. 
No, I love your analogy with the mouse poking his nose in because it's one thing that's uh, my kids. We like watching movies, and one of their favorites for a while was Ratatouille. And there was this short film at the back giving facts about rats, and it said that if a rat can fit his head in somewhere, the rest of his body will follow. And yes. so it's one of those to where this is they're deeply yoked. It's not just about uplifting the black community. It's deeply tried within, uh, tied within transgenderism, queerness. Uh, that's one thing. There's a podcaster, my husband and I like listening to, uh, his name's Jason Whitlock and he's an African-American gentleman. And he's very frustrated that within BLM, you are, you have to drink the Kool-Aid on all of these other things. Otherwise you don't get to, uh, he says it's even an assault on one's blackness to where if you want to uphold the black people, you have to uphold the trans and the queer. And he's like, wait a second, as a Christian, why do I have to go on all these things for it all to, to all to get wrapped up together? And so even he's had that, that bit of frustration. And I like how you mentioned how uh, original, how the original BLM movement, their definitions were scrapped. And I remember when it first came out and the website first came up, their definition of the family, it was basically debunking and destroying uh, all of God's uh, sort of design for the family, uh, relationships, that sort of thing. And they ended up taking it off because of backlash to where if you were to probably, yeah. and I haven't looked at the website here here recently, um, but I think if you went on there, you, you wouldn't see that verbiage in there because again, that sort of, uh, the, that sort of exposes the man behind the curtain, uh, so to speak, that yes, we want to think of it as a good organization, but at its core, what is it actually doing? And it's this whole kind of mode of deconstruction um and yeah it's it's just deeply problematic yes when you think about um the the original you know sentiment behind black lives matter and especially um black lives matter from like 2016 or so um there was all of the conversation on, you know, we're just standing up for black life and mm-hmm. um, just this thought of all of this racism that's happening toward black bodies and things like that. But then we look on their website and they want to do away with the nuclear family, the black yes. nuclear family in favor of these villages and, mm-hmm. you know, these supportive communities, they're standing for the black trans body mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that. And so, you know, God bless people who really wanted to, you know, in 2017, 2018, 19, 20, and, you know, at the height in 2020, churches who really wanted to, you know, hoorah with Black Lives Matter and, um, and support the, the, you know, anti-Black racism, not anti-Black racism, but stand against, you know, anti-Black racism. You know, I, I say, you know, God bless you for that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand, you know, the heart and the sentiment behind that. But if we as Christians aren't doing our due diligence, if we are not investigating and making decisions based on discernment and evidence, we right. will support something that is sinful. You know, mm-hmm. the whole um, mantra behind Black Lives Matter, the say his name, say her name, say their name, whatever. Right. That was extremely problematic because it was rooted in witchcraft. Mm. The the founder, one of the founders, Patrice Colors, did an entire interview on, you know, why we say their name mm. and what it means to 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 conjure up spirits and to borrow the strength from the dead. And, all, and I'm like, huh? Like, <laughs> and this is this is what we're sending our thousands and thousands of dollars to. Right. This is what pastors are encouraging their parishioners to support. Yeah. This is it's it's a problem. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you highlight such a, such an important concept as we as Christian communities, just because something sounds good, we have to be willing to even investigate the things that sound good, because that is where Satan is most clever in these half truths, in these almost truths. And that's where he really creeps in. So yes, we can be motivated by genuine desire to uplift our brothers and sisters in Christ and to recognize past wrongs. Those are all good things, but we have to be careful in the way in which we go about them, because that is where, like you said, sin can creep in. All right. So folks, these are the Black Lives Matter principles that are the kid-friendly versions of the 13 principles. So the first one is restorative justice. We've got empathy, loving engagement, diversity, globalism, transgender affirming, queer affirming, collective value, international, oh wait, no, intergenerational. There we go. Reading is hard. (laughs) Black families, Black villages, Black women, 
unapologetically black. So those are the 13 principles of the kid-friendly Black Lives Matter. Did it come? I should have asked before I even read that out. Do you have that on your phone or? Yeah. Okay, yeah, perfect. I think I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. Awesome. Okay. So some of these right out the gate, they, I mean, like, you know, we can all get on board with, with empathy. Like we should be empathetic towards others. So with regards to this list, Monique, um, which ones, you know, cause here at mama bear, we're always about roaring. We're recognizing the good, uh, but also discerning the, the not so good. And so what are, what are ones that you're like, okay, these are no problem. And then there are others that are deeply problematic. Um, what are your thoughts? Let me do a double check here. So, you know, I think loving engagement, I, I can get on board with that potentially. Yeah. I think the, and I, I won't actually, I was going to say something else, but I'm going to wait for that. Um, yeah, because with loving and engagement, it says here, you know, always trying to be fair and peaceful. Hey, that's biblical. Mm -hmm. You know what? We should be charitable. Yes. We should recognize when people are making great points um, and to seek peace in all situations um, as far as it's possible. It says because different people have different feelings. Very true. Um, sometimes it helps to think yes. about how you would feel and the same things had happened to you or your friends. So I can, I can agree with that to an extent. Mm -hmm. And I know, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about love in a little bit, but yeah. you know, some of these words are being redefined. So what does love really look like? What are you really asking for my child to engage in? It's important to make sure that we are always trying to be fair and peaceful. But when you look at the definition of fair, yeah, it it's changed a little bit. Like Ibram Kendi has, you know, offered us a new definition of what is fair, so to speak, in regards to race. Another one I think I can get, I may be able to get on board with it with this empathy. Mm -hmm. Empathy says it's so important to think about how other people feel because different people have different feelings. Sometimes it helps to think about how you would feel if the same thing happened to you, to, um, happened to your friend, happened to you. So it's the same thing that happened to your friend happened to you. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. I can get on board with that. But is that only for white people? Is that only for black? Like, who is this for? Is it for all the people? Because what I've seen in society promoted through Black Lives Matter and other um, critical social entities would say, you know, well, you need to be thinking about your marginalized friend. Right. But since you yourself aren't marginalized, well, we can't allow this to flip itself and be, you know, pointed toward you. Let me give an example. So let's say that there is a, you know, a racist event that happens um, and a black student is involved. Okay. Mm -hmm. A black, a black student is the, the victim of a racist event. So as a, a white person, they can say, well, yeah, like I'm sure that that would hurt my feelings. Like I would never want someone to treat me that way. But if a, a racist event happens to a white student, is that black child also called to say, hey, look, you know, this is a racist event or do they apply the definition of racism that says, well, white people don't really experience racism? Right. And I've Does actually that heard sense? that. Yeah, no, because I've even heard that in the news and had and have heard advocates even say that that white people cannot experience racism because we are part of the privileged group. So it's like something could happen that is actually racist, whether slurs are involved or whatever. Um, but it's it sort of brushed aside of, oh, no, you're you're white, so you don't get this. So, yes. And so my question would be is, how is the empathy being applied? How are we teaching empathy? Are we teaching empathy as something that we give without, or that is, um, you know, something that you part can participate in without partiality? Mm. So that, you know, hey, we want to be empathetic people. Right. Or is empathy according to some social norm that has now been redefined or reinvented based on skin color, based on social location and things like that? No, and that's such a good point because even within loving engagement, what I'm thinking is, is we have to be fair and peaceful. Okay, but wait, what is the definition of peace that's given here? Because again, yes. if there's only if there's only one definition of peace, like you have to do X um, or believe X to be peaceful, that's where we get, that's where things become problematic. And even here, I'm looking up here, I think it ties into even their first point of restorative justice. It says, uh, you know, we know that if you hurt somebody, you have to help them feel better. You can't just 
just say sorry and walk away. We also know it's important for kids to be able to make better choice uh, another time. And it's grownups job to help them make better choices and give them the chances to do that. So yes, of course, we oh. encourage children uh, to, you know, to say they're sorry. But then again, here's, here's the problem. What is that definition of hurt? And then how do we make somebody feel better? Like, what does that entail? I mean, it, yes. it's like on the surface, it sounds really good, but it can deeply spiral. It seems like very quickly. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to get back to restorative justice because restorative justice has an entire criminality component to it that many people are overlooking simply because of this I have to say I'm sorry. Restorative mm-hmm. justice is much more than saying I'm sorry. Um, but I want to I want to first bring our eyes to this diversity. Different people do different things and have different feelings. It's so important that we have lots of different kinds of people in our community and that everyone feels safe. Right. Well, I don't know about that. Because if I, if my child, as a parent, if my child has someone within their community that may be a bad influence on them, I'm the parent, I get to determine, hey, look, no, little Timmy is cool. I know you like little Timmy. Little Timmy ain't kicking it at our house. And I really don't want you hanging out with little Timmy at school either. Yeah. Because little Timmy is in an environment that may influence you in a negative way. Yes, little Timmy might be diverse. Mm-hmm. But little Timmy has the type of um, either attitude, demeanor, beliefs, thought patterns, whatever that could influence you, especially if you are, you know, first, second, third grade, or yeah. if you are ninth, tenth, eleventh grade. Yeah, you know, like the the all of the school years are very formative and things like that. But there are also other times when it's like, I really want to hold you close. I really want to make sure that you are not surrounding yourself with people who could potentially influence you, especially as the human brain itself and young people are seeking socialization, seeking to be accepted, wanting to have their crowd and their people. We have to consider what things like this are saying when when there's a call for diversity and that we should have people around us from diverse backgrounds and everyone should feel safe. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I can't now, if, if little Timmy is living a sinful life or if little Timmy um, is into things that you shouldn't be at that age, my 10 year old can't tell little Timmy, little Timmy, you know, we shouldn't do that right. because that doesn't make little Timmy feel safe. Mm hmm. Yeah. We have to be careful. We have to we have to really think about what we're saying and what is being promoted to our children. Now, when it comes to restorative justice, I'm sorry, I'm going to read this from my phone. Yeah, um, says we know and you've already read, it, you know, that if you hurt somebody, you have to help them feel better. Well, that depends. depends. Because if I am in self-defense, I am I don't have to help nobody feel better. Now that's me and my own personal, you know, like I'm from the hood. So if you, if you walk up on me or if you walk up on my child Mm. and expect that my child will not engage in self-defense, you got another thing coming. And it seems to overlook too that That sometimes, oh yeah, I I was going to say, it seems to overlook that sometimes our feelings are not accurate. We can feel hurt by something that actually we need to feel hurt by that. We need somebody to come and confront us. But with this definition, if if I'm just feeling put out by somebody, now they have to make me feel right, but it doesn't ask the question, wait, am I in the wrong? What are we actually trying to restore here? That was going to be my second point. Oh, well, your feelings are not God. We do not live our lives based on how we feel all the time. That doesn't mean that feelings don't matter. It doesn't mean that we just negate them and cast them to the side, but I don't live my life based on my feelings, mm. nor do I, if I say something to someone and their feelings might be like, we never, we always teach kindness. We don't want to um, teach a, a disrespect where you are mm. not aware of the fact that someone else is created in the image of God. Okay, so each person has dignity, value, and worth, and we will treat one another as such. But this could also undermine the reality that sometimes truth is painful. Yes. And so now if I offer you truth, then I'm expected to apologize because your feelings got hurt behind truth. Mm. So if I'm a 10th grader and I have a biblical worldview, 
And my transsexual friend or pansexual friend, whatever, comes over and it's like, look, you know, this is this is what I'm doing. And I think you should do it, too. And now as a 10th grader, I say, you know what, my parents and, and my church community and my leaders have really instructed me in this. And this is what I believe. Little friend walks away all hurt. I'm expected to apologize for what the word of God. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And I'm seeing the same things in, within this whole sex positive movement. So we, under sex positivity, it, you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, however many times you want. And that's a good thing. And honestly, and if your friends are doing it too, the only way to project sex negativity is by saying, Hey, what you're doing may not be safe or wise. Like that's being sex negative. And they actually tell people you have to silence those feelings. So it's this active practice of suppressing the Holy spirit. And that's what can be so problematic when this definition of restorative justice is you you do you have to uh you have to quiet the holy spirit not only that within deconstructionism i don't know if you've if you're aware of this book it's called the deconstructionist playbook um it is it is deeply rooted within blm feminism all of those things but it says that when you approach scripture it's on like page one it says you have to uh when you read scripture you you find what you want to keep you rewrite what you want to rewrite and then take out what you want to get rid of to where you don't mm. even have gospel anymore now all of a sudden i'm gospel and like what yes. we're seeing here feeling are gospel. And we become these mini gods constantly seeing other people uh, and making sure other people are bowing down to our own feelings and whims. And, you know, good night. Kid, little kids are, are highly emotional people. This can be very problematic right out the get go. Yes. Now, what I was going to also add about restorative justice is that it offers a criminality factor to it. Okay. So in looking at restorative justice, and I actually took some notes here. I want to make sure that I am um, saying this correctly. The restorative justice has three tenets and they are encounter, repair, and transform. Okay. And so let's say there is an encounter between person A and person B and person B is the one who is now left the victim of a situation okay. because of the criminal reforms that are happening within society, because criminals are and felons are now being looked at as marginalized people, the goal is to avoid prison time. The goal is to avoid punitive justice in exchange mm. for restorative justice. So before a criminal person B or A, whoever is, is the criminal I've I just mentioned, before they can get before a judge. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they might, they might've already been arrested and things like that but before they can have that sentence and that, that mark on their record, the goal would be to bring two people together to say, Hey, look, you know, I, I know that I did wrong. Um, let's see how we can work this out without me having this mark on my record. The goal is to keep minority men primarily away from the criminal justice system. Okay. Now, this would also lend to things like systemic racism within the criminal justice system and why people would, I mean, those thoughts, I'm not saying that that's my thought on it, but mm -hmm. that that whole belief um, in, you know, a systemically racist criminal justice system and how we need to keep black and brown men outside of that system and things like that. It does not mean that the crime has not been committed. Hmm. What it means is that the punitive justice would be um, evaded. Okay. And so this whole restorative justice thing where it's, no, it's, it's, it is more than, you know, simply saying, I'm not, I'm sorry and things like that, but it does not mean that a criminal would actually do time for the crime that was committed. So that's the goal. The goal is to get the people together, to get some kind of, you know, plan together where this person doesn't have a mark on their record. This person doesn't do any jail time because according to a lot of the um, restorative justice, you know, websites and books that you read, you know, people are really more than the crime that they commit. Mm. I agree with that. Yeah. However, when you look at God's just moral law, there is also punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And that punishment is beneficial because again, it brings us to a better state. It's that refining fire. And we have to, especially with kiddos, they have to understand that there are consequences to actions. Not all consequences are bad. Some are good consequences, but there is justice in that. But yeah, when we start to circumvent that, that design, that structure, then it, it's problematic because we're not addressing the root issue. 
And then we, we move so far away from justice. Mm. How How is your whole project called restorative justice and yet no justice is done on behalf of the victim like mm-hmm. because just because you get someone to either comply or get to a place of agreement does not necessarily mean that justice was um meted out right if if murder if the if the penalty for murder um in the law and to me according to scripture yeah would be death but now you have, and I don't know all the steps that go into restorative justice and, you know, how much of it is a hoodwink and bamboozle or how mm. much of it is, you know, a plea and a cry not to, you know, cause this person to have to go into the jail system. I have no idea. Um, but I, it makes me wonder what goes into those conversations where if there's a murder or a robbery and a mugging or a shooting where, like, what can you tell me that really would, you know, cause me to say, well, no, I guess, you know, a a punishment doesn't need to be meted out on that. Hmm. I don't, it just, it it leaves me wondering what happens in those, in those conversations. Yeah. No, and it's funny because it, it brings to mind this this quote from the book Utopia, and I'm pulling it from uh, a movie. Um, I think it was called a, a Cinderella Story, but she she quotes this book Utopia that says, you know, um, how can you punish someone when it's the society that made them? And I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but it's society made them to be the criminal. So society made them this way. How can you then punish them for it? So it's yes, yeah. yeah there's um, I just did a a blog, and um, I don't think. It- it hasn't released yet, but it's on a book called The Hate You Give. Now, oh, parents- That was really popular you, with teens. Yes, and it still is. I know yeah. that, that Angela Thomas has received some feedback recently and, and over the last you know few years, but The Hate You Give is actually um, part of a larger acronym called Thug Life. It was, um, there was a rap artist named Tupac back in the 90s, he was killed, longer story. But he coined this term thug life and it is the hate you give mm. Fs little infants. And so it it's thug life. So TH then the hate you give. Yeah. Um wait, the hate you give, sorry, little infants mm-hmm. Fs everyone. So mm-hmm. the premise behind this is that the hate that society gives people. And in this book, it's talking about black people, brown people, poor, oppressed, oppressed based on this new societal definition. So the hate that is given, which would be racism, poverty, drugs, um, systemic racism, gosh, any kind of negative, this, all this hate that, that black people are given Mm -hmm. in the end, it F's, everyone because you then get riots you get anger you get protests which is you know all part of the book um the book actually kind of calls for this in the end really and yeah oh wow and i was saying that as part of something larger that i wanted to tie it back to and now i completely have lost my train of thought well, no, I, and I love that it is, that's totally okay. Rabbit trails, they happen. But this is great because I know of a lot of teens, this was popular. I mean, it was made into a movie to where the, I'm looking forward to your blog because now this is so great because parents can, okay, if your kid has read this or if you're considering reading it, here's a great blog to sort of go through and say, okay, let's let's look at actually the issues. Let's do the whole roar through it and see which is which is true, what's false. What can we, uh, what can we point back to Christ on? Um, that's awesome. Great tool for parents. Yeah. So I got to ask, because there are within these principles, um, we see uh, the transgender affirming, the queer affirming. And then, uh, I mean, like the last four, it's these black principles. And what's interesting is when I was reading over these, it reminded me of this Jojo Siwa, who was a, a popular child star, YouTuber, that sort of thing. She's come out as lesbian. And one thing she said during Pride Month is you're either for us or you're in our way. And that's kind of what we're seeing within these principles. Um, that's what it appears like anyway, is you're, you're either for and supporting us and actively, in fact, within Pride and everything else 
else, you have to advocate just like under BLM. You have to actively be seeking to take down anything that would um, oppose queer and transgender ideologies, LGBTQ ideologies. Um, and that seems to be the goal. So if, if that's what this appears to be, then is there room to agree to disagree on these topics? Like, can Christian kids uh, look at these principles and maintain their faith and actively live out their faith while upholding these principles? Or is there tension there? No, there's going to be tension there. One of the, the things that uh, my ministry partner, Krista, tends to say is that you should raise your kids to understand that they are going to be a religious minority. Mm -hmm. And what are the implications of that? Yeah. But you can't have one foot in the word and one foot in BLM. Yeah. The two don't mix. You're going you're going to at some point, even if you start out with one foot here and one foot there, you are going to be called to choose. Where are you going to plant your feet? Ibram Kendi in How to Be an Anti-Racist says you are either um, racist or you are anti-racist. Mm -hmm. There is no not racist kind of living, you know, my life with Jesus and not, you know, treating people with partiality. If you say, well, I don't treat people with partiality, like I, I'm, I'm for the equal treatment of all people. Ibram Kendi would say that you're being racist mm -hmm. because you are not actively out there looking to transform society, looking to change laws, looking to stand with the LGBTQ+, looking to stand with, you know, his list of people that you have to be an ally for. Mm. You cannot um, not be a feminist wow. or an ally to feminism. Mm. You cannot not be an ally to the queer person or the queer affirming person. Yeah. Because if you are, you know, if, if you say, well, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not in support of these things, but I do support that all people are made in God's image. And thus, you know, we shouldn't participate in racism. He will say, well, you're being racist. Wow. I really recommend that people read first sources so that you can yes. understand the, the mentality and the methodology that is happening within our society and why when when groups like BLM come forward and say, this is the way that we play the game, how damaging it is and how confusing it can be to young people who would say, well, of course, you know, everyone has value. Um, and that's one of the, the, the guiding principles on here. It's, um, collective value yeah. that yes, everyone has value. We see this in Genesis that every mm -hmm. person is made in God's image with dignity, value, and worth. I can affirm that. Now, what does that mean when you are upholding the critical social theories? Mm. There's a different definition of collective value than what we see presented in Genesis. Yeah. No, and that's a good point. And it, it really kind of, it almost shoots itself in the foot because here we have diversity. We need all different people with all different sort of viewpoints. But really when it comes to Christianity, and I mean, it's not just Christianity. I mean, when you look at Catholicism, Islam, I mean, all of these, they're not welcome. If you uphold a standard of male and female, the family unit, it, you can't have that. That's not the diversity they're talking about. So it, it's interesting how, you know, at first it's advocated, but then as you go through these principles, you see all of these little things that you have to conceive to that really there there isn't diversity maybe in appearances but not in mm -hmm. beliefs no not at all it is definitely a monolith you definitely are either on the team or you're not and if you're on the team you are accepting all of the rules of the game mm. wow. and there there is no agree to disagree if you disagree then you are intolerant you are unloving you are a phobe, whatever that phobe is, or you participate right. um, in, in like this phobic way, or you are an ist, whatever that ist is, sexist, racist, ageist, whatever. Um, it, and we have to, as Christians, understand that. Yeah. We have to understand that this isn't a time to sit back and say, well, you know, maybe if I just agree a little bit, we have to understand what that a little bit of agreement is going to cost us in the end. Yeah. This is a worldview conversation. We can't skimp out on the parts that make us uncomfortable, nor can we skimp out on um, the parts that make us not liked by society.
Oh, and I love that you, I love that you mentioned that because it reminded me of the Q and a session that you and Krista did at the WIA conference. And, oh, I'm blanking on the speaker's name, but she was amazing. Uh, and she was talking about how Lanesh. I believe it was Lanesh. She was the one that's saying that we need to raise righteous kids, meaning that we have to empower our kiddos uh, to be solely rooted in the Holy Spirit, because that's where uh, like Jason Whitlock, he, he advocates for fearlessness. Like when we fear the Lord, we do not fear man. So when our kiddos are encountering these things, they also need to rely on that boldness within the Holy Spirit rooted in that, not having a spirit of meekness, but that boldness in Christ to wield the spiritual armor effectively within culture and be willing to accept the fact that you're going to get some hate from it. You're going to get some unfollows. People are going to say some mean things on the internet about you, but that's not what matters. What ultimately matters is, are we rooted in truth and in God's word? Because if we're not, then like you said, when you start, it starts creeping in and we start conceding and making compromises. And all of a sudden the things you, we start believing these things and, and getting to a place that we never wanted to be once we start giving up truth. Yes. Yes. And it, you know, gosh, my heart really goes out to, to young people because on yeah. one end, we do want to raise kids who are um, righteous, who understand their worldview, who are not going to, um, you know, just, you know, fall over and pass out and die just because somebody called them a bad name. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. And the, these years are so important. They're so impactful and so yeah. precious. You only get the, you know, the first 18 years once. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do parents really surround their kids with other like-minded people, their age, so mm-hmm. that they're not feeling alone. They're not feeling like, Oh, I'm just the odd person. It's important that kids also have community so that they can, you know, have these conversations and that parents have these conversations with their kids and have, have these conversations even in front of your kids, get kids together and talk about these things. But we never want to just say, you know, you need to raise your kid to be strong. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate of a strong child. Um, but never to the degree that, you know, they never have time to really just be kids. And so that's a, that's a balance that parents also have to, to weigh out is yes, I'm going to raise a strong child. No, if that person calls my kid a name, my kid is not just going, you know, pass out and roll in, in the dirt. Yeah. And I also have a setup where my kid can be with other like-minded kids and they can do things. They can watch movies. They can read books. They can go out, they can hang, they can, you know, listen to music and, and it's appropriate for them so that they're not missing out on the importance of these formative years in exchange for, you know, this rogue strength. Yes. Oh no. Such a fantastic point. Cause absolutely. Yes. They need those, they need those areas where they can unwind, but they need to be around peers who are like-minded so they can wrestle with these issues, even among their peers and yes. be, not constantly be bogged down. Cause that's one thing, social media, it, it's great to connect with people, but it also keeps that community on 24 seven to where if your kid is maybe encountering some opposition, it, it's hard to shut it off. I mean, and you have to, you have to take the phones away, the computers away, whatever you got to do to not only protect your kiddos, but also actively be involved, not only in their friend group, but forming friendships with other moms and dads with kiddos of the same age to, again, nurture these good communities because community isn't a bad thing. But again, we need to make sure that we're also upholding the original community, the one that actually points back to Christ, which is within the family unit. Yeah. So one thing I've got, so, and this will probably be the last one we discuss is this idea of globalism Um, because globalism, I mean, it's an interesting concept in and of itself. I mean, you can get all like new world world order, crazy conspiracy theory really quick with this one. But one thing that sticks out to me when I was reading about this globalist thing is it it's basically trying to make things fair all the way across the globe, which, okay, you know, fair is great. Obviously there's, there's impoverished communities where there's starvation or oppression. You know, we want these things, but my question is, is within CRT, within BLM, who determines what's fair? Because it seemed like everybody who knows, everybody's ever done art knows that you need a ruler to make a straight line. What, what's the ruler within BLM or CRT? Like what these principles, where are they getting this truth from? Well, I guess my, my question would be, what's your definition of fair? Oh, great point. So I, I mean, I would, that, that, that question's very interesting. Um, because what, I mean, fair can be very 
relativistic yeah at some point um you know is it is it fair that i'm almost five nine and krista is five feet on a good day you know like (laughs) is it is that fair Mm -hmm. is it fair that um you know you can have twins and you know one is born with a deformity and the other one is completely fine Mm -hmm. what is the definition of fair how are we how are we um i guess what what's the standard yeah of this word fair Mm -hmm. now if I am going to look um, at some, you know, secular construct or secular ideology for the word fair. I should automatically assume it's going to be skewed some way. Mm. This is where people then begin to talk about things like making things fair in education so that we can have an equal outcome. Making things fair around the world so that we can achieve equality. Mm. But how do you want one? I don't know what your your definition of fair is. Mm. One, two, I don't know. No one is really talking about all of the ways in which we get to equal. By what standard are you measuring these things out? So an example could be, you know, you have a school district where um, you know, it, let, let's just say it's half black, half white and the black students are, you know, not doing as well necessarily in, in school. This is, so there's a disparity automatically. Every disparity is generally within education seen as being racist, mm. but all disparities aren't racist. Right. Okay. There, you have to have a lot of data in detail to, to be able to prove like, Hey, this is racist. But right now within this current cultural moment, disparities tend to automatically equal racism. Yeah. So what are the steps that are required to get us to a more fair, um, understanding of education or to an equal outcome? Right. In some schools, it looks like removing things from certain student groups and adding things to other groups to make it fair so that this group now is at the same playing field as the other group. Mm. An example of this would be to say, well, you know, the white students, they're all in the AP classes. So we're going to take away AP classes. And we will give the black students who are who aren't doing as well iPads mm. so that they have the same resource and the white kids aren't able to com- continue to excel so far. So now we, it, it's more fair. But is it? Yeah. Is it fair to take something away from me simply because you aren't doing as well? Mm. Is the issue behind why you aren't doing well, truly a race issue based mm-hmm. on racism or is it a cultural issue is and nobody wants to talk about culture so oh, i'm not gonna go down that true. road because i'm gonna try and <laughs> that's a whole podcast in and of but, itself um it, it's a whole thing all by itself yep. um and i will say this every culture has things that can be praised and every culture has things that should be damned Yep. That is across the board. But we need to look into, you know, some of the things that we are saying are, you know, causing disparities and the disparities are there because of um, social, you know, class racism or systemic racism or all of these things. Well, you know, we could have other conversations and introduce a conversation around culture with that. Mm. You know, I could be up for that. Um, but the idea of what is fair takes on a very different look when it, it involves taking away something or giving something to someone so that we can have an equal outcome. Yeah. Fairness and equity is about the outcome. But yes. it, it does not always mean that things will be fair. Ibram Kendi says this in his book as well, that, you know, sometimes to be, um, to be anti-racist, you must be racist. Sometimes to get rid of racism, you have to actually be racist to get rid of racism. Huh. That is what would be considered fair. Wow. To get rid of the disparity, sometimes you have to disparage. Yeah. Well, and that it, it is. Yeah, go ahead. 
Oh no, I was going to say, it reminds me of an example that, I, that I've heard you and Krista talk about before that is very subje- subjective to the perception of the person too. And you're, you're not on a firm foundation because this fairness and equality and equal outcome, it, it's very short lived because there's going to be another situation that comes out to where even if let's say there, there was a person who was trying to, you know, act in ways that restore justice and all of these things. Well, the second they're in a different situation, well, maybe they won't. And they lose that, that, uh, that role of, okay, no, you're no longer being supportive or you're not on board with BLM anymore because of this now thing. So it's almost, it, it almost places the person who's trying to make amends. They, they're constantly having to dog paddle in water because there's, there's no firm foundation for them to stand on because it's based solely on the perceptions and the outcomes of the other person. Yes. Yes, 100%. What you're saying makes me think of um, this term called academic redlining. I read Mm. an article about it a couple of days ago where um, there's a professor at a prominent university. He's white and he teaches African-American history. Mm -hmm. Well, now in looking at the whole movement, the whole critical social theory movement, but largely critical race theory, the, the movement would say, well, you know, it's not fair to have a white person teach black history. It's not Mm. fair to use white sources to teach black history. So we need to remove these things from the conversation. Yeah. It, it, it just leads to kind of like what I hear you saying is that you're always going to be dogpiling. You'll never be able to do enough. Yeah. The the conversation of fairness is really, I feel like a smoke screen for something else. Mm. And it's, it's, um, it's our responsibility to really dig through and say, okay, what is actually being talked about? What's being promoted? If fairness Mm. was not, you know, if fairness was only a smoke screen, what would be you know, behind this? How do I get to, to the truth of what people are wanting to promote? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit of a genetic fallacy too, because now it's saying this group cannot be trusted purely because of race or maybe what ancestors have done. I mean, and that, and that's just dangerous. That's not good scholarship, you know? Yeah. So, um, well, one thing, okay. So this is popping up in classrooms. There are parents who are going to be seeing this when they drop their little one off. And so what are some, what are some practical tips that you would do if, if a parent goes in first day of school and they notice this is hanging by the light switch in their kid's classroom, you know, what are some practical things you'd offer parents to, to maybe do with their kiddos? Is there anything that they can maybe mention to their school board? Um, or is this purely like, okay, unfortunately this is just how public school is. So we just need to make sure that we're discipling our kiddos. What are, what are some thoughts and tips? you have for parents? Gosh, it, it is difficult. Um, I would definitely, if, if I walked in and there was like some kind of pride flag hanging in my kid's class, I would have to have a conversation with the principal, with the teacher and with mm-hmm. all the people. Now they're going to say, you know, it, well, it's about inclusivity and allowing, right. you know, my, you know, this kid or the, the other children in the classroom to understand that this is a safe space. I would say, you know, your, your, the teacher's demeanor and actions can present a safe space. You, um, you know, wearing your pride flag or, um, coming out to your 10th graders and things like that is more about you just letting people know who you're sleeping with. Like (laughs) this has, this has nothing to do with the child. Mm -hmm. This has to do with what you personally need affirmed. Right. You need the students to understand, Hey, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. But your role as an, you're either an educator or as James Lindsay would say, you're a groomer. Oh, and we point. need to, we need to remember what the role of education is. Mm-hmm. The role of education is for my kid to sit down and learn reading, writing and arithmetic. Mm-hmm. My kid, I'm not sending my kid to, to school to understand how to have, um, you know, homosexual engagements, how to masturbate, how to be an ally. But yet this is what is included in comprehensive sexual education. The fact that the pride flag or the Black Lives Matter flag or, you know, which is just the Black Lives Matter flag is a compilation of a bunch of flags at this point. Um, that's not what we're sending our kids to school for. Unfortunately, the entity of education is sweeping our kids that way. 
Right. So if you feel like you cannot have any inroads with your um, school, either the school board or your teacher or principal, then run for the school board. Get on the school board and begin to make make shifts and changes. Get friends around to rally with you to join the school board. Begin to um, to make inroads in places where you can. I'm an advocate of homeschooling. I haven't always been, but I am a huge advocate of homeschooling. And I say, if you can homeschool or if you can get a group of parents together to form a homeschooling co-op, do that because the schools are not getting any better. They are not your friend. No, the schools do not want to educate your children in ways that are wholesome and decent. Mm -hmm. They have an agenda and that agenda will continue until we have you know, parents on school boards saying, you know, not in, not in my district. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, you know, being able to talk to the principal, being able to talk to on the school board, being able to talk to your, your teachers and things like that. Um, and then if you can't join the school board, encourage others, rally people together to be able to do that. And then to me, homeschooling is always the best option. Um, In addition to that, raising your kids to understand who they are in Christ Mm -hmm. and raising them to understand who other humans are. You know, if your kid has a relationship with Jesus, then they are children of God. Not every person is a child of God. Right. But every person is an image bearer of God. And so Mm -hmm. how do we treat other image bearers with dignity, value and worth? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Explain sin and the ramifications of sin. You know, sin, sin is, is why our world is in the corrupt chaos that it's, that it's in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, um, because of the color of skin you bear own somebody else's sin. Mm. And that's, you know, and that, that's, I know you said this is gonna be our last thing, so I can't go down that whole road, but I really want to. You um, can do it. I don't care. No, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. if I, if I were raising a white child and I have had this conversation with white teenagers, you know, you don't have to repent for being white. You don't have to, um, you know, you have to what repent and lament your whiteness and all of that. Right. No, yeah. no, Mm-mm. no, we, we don't do that. We don't participate that way. And so if that's what the call is at school, in your classroom, on the cheer team or whatever, you can go ahead and walk away. Mm. And we'll talk about that at home. Yeah. This is part of that boldness, though, too. Um, Gosh, what else? I would say begin, um, you know, just digging into history with your kids. It doesn't matter what your child's skin color is. Children need to understand history. Yes. I've run into many kids, teenagers who have been like, well, critical race theory must be real because I was never taught these atrocities in American history. Mm. And because they because they weren't taught that their assumption is that America is the most racist nation. Right. We can look at all of history. It doesn't have to be a revised history. It needs to be an accurate history. So when I look back over the course of history, one of the things that I can do is I can look at slavery yeah. and I can look at it openly because it's our history. I'm not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you know, overtake the entire conversation. It is a part of our history. And yeah. when I look at the entirety of history and look at the entirety of the slave narrative, what I can also own is the fact that whites own black people. There were, there were laws changed so that Christian slaves would have to remain slaves instead of being set free from their slavery. Oh, wow. As you know, the early, early slave codes kind of, um, went along with the idea that if a slave is baptized, then they should be set free because now they're brothers and sisters. And then that was changed. We can talk about the slave Bible and how certain um, chunks of scripture were removed so that black people would not understand the Exodus. They would not understand what the word of God said about freedom Mm -hmm. and all of that. We can look at how black women had medical experiments done on them during slavery. We can look at how, um, you know, black women were, were basically baby meals and were raped by slave owners. We can look at history can be ugly. Yeah. And of course you do this in accordance with like age and things like that. We can look at Jim Crow. We can look at how Jim Crow even came to be and the politics in America that went behind Jim Crow. Mm. 
do you have any go ahead i was gonna say do you let me let me let me finish finish. this thought because i would also say that i can also look at history and slavery and see other black people owning black people we Mm -hmm. do not have to stop at the narrative that slavery is a white man's problem slavery is a sin problem there were black people who owned other black people Mm -hmm. there were Native Americans who owned Black people. So when I'm saying we need to look at a full orbed history, we need to look at the whole thing so that I am not now creating a space where because of the color of skin of a child, they have this overarching guilt and and say, well, this must make me bad. No, honey, let me explain the entirety of what our culture isn't really talking about and say, this is a sin problem. Mm -hmm. But nobody's talking about the other, but go ahead. No, no, I I love it. Gosh, there's so many things. Um, So first, what I love that you pointed out is that when we look at BLM and CRT, we're not looking at principles in and of themselves. We're looking at an entire worldview that try to offers a a different gospel other than what Christianity offers. There's a different salvation. There is a different sin issue. Um, And that's where we need to approach this really is encountering this other worldview and see, okay, how does this account for morality, truth, the nature of God, who I am as a person? Um, all of these concepts, which I think is, is great for parents because that, that now, okay, we, we see the purpose of this. We see kind of the goal and the agenda, and we can also see the false promises of salvation and and how to get there and how it's not even possible to get there. So I love that, that worldview approach, uh, too, with regards to teaching history. Um, you know, we've got parents that love resources off the top of your head. Do you know of any books that you can point to? So, um, and I know there probably aren't as many for, for little ones as there are maybe middle and high school. Are there any books or resources that you could point parents to that say, okay, let's, let's look at history. Um, unashamedly. Yes. So I will look at the 1776 Unites Project. Okay. Um, or 1776 Unites Organization. Okay. There was a book. I just got two books. Um, one is talking about, it's called Black, I think it's called Black Slave Owners. Mm. Um, but it looks at the, the tradition of slavery mm. among blacks and so how you know some black people would buy their freedom and then they would buy their relatives so that their relatives could be free many people don't know that slaves could you know work outside of the plantation slaves could um buy their freedom depending on the slave owner and things like that and so some slaves would buy other relatives um but some slave on black slave owners saw slavery just as another lucrative opportunity the same way white slave owners did so i'm reading that book and then um there is a book on native American slave owners. And I, I'll have to send you both of those names. Um, but the 1776 Unites organization, they actually have curriculum. Oh, and that can be very helpful um, in looking at history from a, you know, a, a well thought out you know, perspective. It's not revisionist or anything like that. Yeah. And then if you want to, you know, have conversations with your kid about racial unity or ethnic unity, I definitely would say, check out our curriculum, Reconciled. Reconciled looks through scripture. And so it gets kids and it's it's a it's a curriculum for adults. That's how, how we originally thought of it. But you can definitely do it with um, older kids and teens can definitely do it. I would would just say it's a six week curriculum. I would expand it over yeah. 12 weeks, do one chapter every two weeks, but get your kids in the word to see what does the word of God say about our reconciliation as believers? We are mm. told we will never be unified with the world. If you are truly a Christian, you are not going to have any unity with the world, <laughs> right? You know, you are not going to be reconciled with the world. Mm-hmm. So how are we are we already, how are we already today as believers reconciled? This idea of racial reconciliation and all of that, those are cultural ideas. Mm. We are reconciled as believers. We are brothers and sisters, regardless of your skin color. Um, you can order it on Amazon. It's called Reconciled. Or you can go to our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com and order a PDF of it there. It is, um, like I said, a six-week curriculum. It has the, you know, 
text copy, but then it also has a video that goes with each lesson. And it really gets people into the word of God so that people can see for themselves what the word of God says. You know, it's not about what Chris or I think it's about what does the word of God teach us about our familial relationship? Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for these great resources because parents, we know that not all of your living situations are going to enable you to be able to homeschool. So if you are one of those, don't feel hopeless because yes. there are books, there are discussions. You can raise righteous kids. My goodness, if Daniel can go through the most impressive indoctrination camp possible when he was taken captive in Babylon, you can raise your kiddos to stand firm and be strong in the faith. And parents, we also want to encourage you to be bold. I mean, through uh, through Monique and Krista's work as what we were talking about today, you know, get involved. If you see this stuff coming into your schools, into your churches, speak up, be fearless before the Lord, but stand boldly in front of man, stand up and speak truth, point out uh, this for what it is. If you've got little ones, again, this, uh, these, these guides for kids, principles for kids, uh, it's very accessible and how it's written. You can have good, fruitful conversations that help your kiddos think whenever there is a word like what Chris or uh, what Monique and I were discussing, like fairness and peaceful and justice, ask them, okay, wait, what, what do you think this definition is here? What they've heard in school first, and then say, no, actually, this is what it is. This is what uh, BLM teaches justices, help them flex that critical thinking muscle. Because our role as parents is to raise children who are competent before the Lord, not to convert them. We're not to be Holy spirits We're we are there to help our kiddos recognize truth because when they recognize truth, they run into Jesus every time. So be bold, access these resources, check out Monique and Krista's work. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. And, and don't be intimidated when you see this stuff in classrooms, instead see it as an opportunity to be bold and to witness for truth. Krista, do you, or, I keep calling you Krista. Uh-huh. Krista Krista's listening. She's amazing. Monique, she do you, do you have any final thoughts, encouragements to parents out there before we close out this awesome podcast? You know, um, I guess as an encouragement, I would say keep standing. You're not standing alone. Um, you know, at CFBU, we actually have parent groups for um, parents whose kids have deconstructed. We are um, wanting to support parents. We put out resources, you know, multiple resources a week between our Instagram and Facebook pages, come join the family, you know, the, the family at CFBU, um, come be a part of the conversation and, you know, know that you'll be empowered to be able to stand and stand together. Yeah, no. And I love that because even their teens, if if teens got a question, they could even message you guys and be like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what my friend said. Uh, this is what our books are teaching. It's great. Anytime you can put resources in the hands of your kids, it's fantastic. So yes, Monique, thank you so much, Krista. I know you're listening. You did amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Just blessings upon your ministry. And thank you so much for pouring into our moms here at Mama Bear Apologetics. Thank you. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.